This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Welcome to today's class. We have a lot of different topics to talk about because this Shabbat, there's four things going on. This Shabbat, we have a double parasha, Ayakhel Pikudei. Um, it's also Shabbat Chodesh, which is a special reading because of Rosh Chodesh Nisan, which is on Sunday, it's Saturday night. Rosh Chodesh Nisan, so it's a special reading to tell us that Rosh Chodesh Nisan, the month of Nisan, is coming. And it's also Shabbat Nevarachin, which is a Shabbat where we bless the new month of Nisan. So it's the four things happening this Shabbat. Let's recap. It's Vayakel, Pikudei, two parashiot together, because it's not a leap year. And it's also Shabbat Chodesh, we're going to have a special Sefer Torah for a new reading, Shabbat Chodesh, about the month of Nisan. And finally, it's the Shabbat also that we bless the new month of Nisan. So four things going on this week. And uh, I want you to try and go to shul. Or if you can't, if you can't, if you can't. Okay. Otherwise, this is a good observation point to see what's going on, what, what happens the Shabbat. Even if you're not in shul, automatically these things are happening. So let's start off with this week's parasha of Vayakhel Pekudei. It's a double parasha. And this week's parasha is really a continuation of a whole bunch of parashiyot which start off uh, a few weeks ago. It starts off the second half of the book of uh, Exodus of Shemot, describing in great detail the construction of the Mishkan. The Mishkan, the tabernacle in the desert, the portable temple that the Jews had in the desert, which eventually moved to Israel. And they went and entered into, into Israel and lasted all the way till the first temple was built by Shlomo Melech some 400 years later. So the portable sanctuary, portable tabernacle, which accompanied the Jewish people over the 39 years in the desert. And it consisted of an inner chamber, the Holy of Holies. Everyone knows about the Holy of Holies, Kodesh Kodeshim. This is illustrated in the shul, in our shuls, by the Ark, the Holy Ark, where we put the Sefetorah. That's like a Holy of Holies, a mini Holy of Holies. And we have a parochet, uh, a curtain in front of the Ark. That's the parochet, which they will separate the Holy of Holies from the Holy. So there were two rooms in this Mishkan. Number one was the Holy of Holies. Inside the Holy of Holies, you have the Aron HaKodesh, which is, uh, as it says, a box of holiness. Always inside the box. And it was inside the box we're going to talk about the two Luchot Habrit, the two uh, stones on which you have the Ten Commandments, the second tablets, the second Ten Commandments, because there were two Ten Commandments. And uh, the broken tablets, which Moshe Rabbeinu broke when he saw the Jews worshipping the golden calf. There was also the, the staff of Aaron Kohen, on which uh, the almond blossoms grew to prove that he was a Kohen that was put inside the ark. And he had a bottle of man. Manna. If we could find the ark, we could find this bottle of manna. So we'd know what the manna really is. So the bottle of manna was inside the ark, inside the holy ark. And apparently it was taken out by Jeremiah Yirmiyahu many years later. The people were thought that, you know, they had to work hard for their money. And Jeremiah pulled out the manna and he says, money and food come from heaven. Yeah, he has the proof. He has the manna. So he takes out this flask of manna and he shows them and he says, Hashem provides for everyone. So it's not just your hard work that provides. It's also God's blessing. The manna was God's blessing. So you had how many things inside the ark? Four things. You had the two tablets of the Ten Commandments. You had the broken tablets of the Ten Commandments. You had the staff of Aaron, Aaron, the brother of Moses. And you had also the bottle of manna inside. Some people say there was also a Sefer Torah, the first Sefer Torah written by Moshe Rabbeinu, 
interesting discussion the Gemara and Baba Batra was the room inside the ark for the Sevet Torah, which was written by Moshe Rabbeinu. And over there, the Gemara goes into details of uh, pi. He uses pi over there, uh, and it approximates pi as the number three, which is close, 3.142. The Gemara um, approximates to three. Anyway, so according to some opinions, the first Sevet Torah written by Moshe Rabbeinu was also inside the ark. According to other opinions, there was a ledge built onto the ark, the holy ark, on which the Sevet Torah rested. Okay, so that's the Ark. The Holy Ark was inside the Holy of Holies, one room. The second room was called the Holy. So it wasn't as holy as the Holy of Holies. What difference does it make? The Holy of Holies was entered only once a year, and it was only entered by the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, on Yom Kippur. The only time it was allowed to be entered was on Yom Kippur by the high priest, whoever it was at that time. So that's why it's called the Holy of Holies. No one was allowed to enter the Holy of Holies. That's where Hashem's voice could be heard coming from there, coming from on top of the ark, between the two keruvim, the two cherubs, which we're going to talk about with Hashem later on. So that's where they heard the voice of Hashem. That's where Moshe Rabbeinu, when he came into the, uh, the Mishkan, he would hear the voice of Hashem coming from between the two keruvim, between the two cherubs. And outside that, you have the other room, which is called the holy. Inside the holy, you had the shulchan, which is a table. It wasn't a regular table. It was a table with a lot of different shelving. And on top of that table, you had 12 loaves of bread. So 12 loaves actually of matzah bread, matzah bread. Two, 12 loaves of matzah bread. It's called the shulchan, or they call it the showbread. The showbread was on top of the shulchan. You had shelving uh, made of tubes, gold tubes. And uh, on top of that, they would put the bread, uh, which, was, uh, which was actually made of matzah, matzah bread. Very, very interesting how they made bread, which was at least a tefah, uh, one hand breath thick, and it was considered matzah, was unleavened bread, which was kept inside on the, on the table for a whole week, and it was eaten by the Kohen at the end of the week. Every Shabbat, the Kohenim would eat the showbread and put a new showbread, which was baked that previous Friday, on the shulchan. The shulchan, you have the menorah, which we have talked about, the menorah, the famous menorah, and as we discussed, it was the shape of the menorah. Our shape of the menorah is rounded. Uh, according to Rambam, it was uh, straight. It was just branches coming off a central stem, straight off the central stem, not curved at all. There's no curvature in the, in the branches. Our menorahs are based on the design in the Arch of Titus. When Titus, the emperor of Rome, well, he, before he was the emperor of Rome, he was a general who destroyed the second temple. And he is the one who removed the holy different uh, things from the temple, including the menorah. And the menorah's etching was engraved on the Arch of Titus, which is in Rome today. You can go and see it today. It was an Arch of Triumph. The Titus had destroyed uh, Yerushalayim and destroyed the Bed of Midash. And you see over there the Jewish slaves carrying the menorah. And you see the menorah over there was rounded. So that's the reason for our menorah, even though the Rambam seems to, seems to have diagrams uh, showing there were the uh, branches coming off the menorah was straight coming off the menorah. So different opinions how the mineral was made. Uh, was it straight off? Was it curved? Soon, we'll find out exactly how the mineral is made. We just have to wait for the Mashiach to come. Okay, so that's the mineral. So you had the Shulchan, the mineral, and you had a gold altar. And the gold altar inside the, the room was made for incense. Incense, the Ramam says, the purpose of the incense was to create a very nice fragrance in the Beit HaMikdash. That in the Mishkan, in the Beit HaMikdash, you go near it and you'll smell a a beautiful fragrance. It's like uh, Lehavdil. All these department stores, 
uh, Macy's example, for example, they have all the, at the entrance, they have all the perfumes. So as soon as you walk in, you sell the smell of the good perfume and you want to go in, you want to see, you want to see what's going on and you smell the perfume and it attracts people. So too, in the Mishkan, you have this beautiful perfume, this incense, which was brought twice a day, once in the morning, once in the evening, and gave this beautiful perfume. And then outside this room, so this, uh, this uh, Mishkan was actually two rooms, the holy, which was entered by the coin on duty or the coin gadol twice a day. And where he, would, uh, he would light the menorah in the evening and prepare the menorah in the morning and bring the incense twice a day. And the lechem, the, the bread was placed on the table once a week on every Shabbat. And then outside that was, you had the chatzer, which is the courtyard of the Benedictash, the courtyard of the temple. And in the courtyard, you had the outside altar. Okay, the altar in the, in the Mishkan was a bronze altar, a copper bronze altar, which uh, was filled with earth. This Bach Adamatasili, an altar of earth you make for me. So every time they moved, they had to empty out the earth and they would carry the altar. And then when they arrived, they would fill the earth into the altar. Okay, so you had these different parts of the Mishkan. And the second half of the book of Shemot, as we said, has great detail about the construction of the Mishkan, the portable sanctuary, and uh, the idea of the tabernacle of the Mishkan as a sacred place for Hashem. And the circumstances surrounding its construction, each of the vessels were built with many details, which correspond to the concept that each vessel represents. So let's uh, go into that bit more in detail. So we, we said it's uh, uh, the, the Mishkan covers many different parashiyot. Starts with Parsha Truma, where the Torah asks the first fundraising drive in history. The first fundraising drive we have. Uh, one of many fundraising drives in the Jewish world. You know, we have these fundraising drives for all different uh, occasions, for all different situations, all different groups, different uh, organizations, always fundraising. But the first fundraising drive in history was explicitly mentioned in the Torah and Parsha Truma, where Moshe Rabbeinu asked for donations to build the Mishkan. So the question is, why did God request a building? Why did God request a building? And we're going to talk about a massive debate over here between the Rambam, Maimonides, and Rashi on one side, and the Ramban and others on the other side. So we have a massive debate, a philosophical debate. Why do we need a building to house Hashem? How can a building house Hashem in the first place? How can God want a building in this world, in this dimension? Why do we need a building? So the answer, according to Rambam, Hashem does not need a building. The building is there specifically for us because we failed. We failed drastically as a nation when we built this golden calf. So as soon as we got the Torah, we were in a very high state. According to Arizal, we had fixed the sin of Adam and the world went back to what it was before the sin of Adam. Unfortunately, it's 40 days later, the Arab Rav started the sin of the golden calf and the Jewish people followed them. Unfortunately, at least they didn't stop them and therefore they were inculcated in the guilt also of the golden calf episode. Moshe Rabbeinu comes down the mountain the same day, the 17th of Tammuz, which became a, a fast day. And he sees the Jews worshiping this calf and he smashes the first tablets of the Ten Commandments. And uh, he, he uh, tries to make amends to God. He goes yeah, back up for 40 days praying and comes down again and goes back up on Rosh Chodesh, Elul, which is why we inspired him to start Selichot already 40 days before Yom Kippur because of Moshe Rabbeinu's prayers on Rosh Chodesh Elul. And he comes down the third time, according to Rashi, according to Rashi, it was three times, he went up 
and uh, he comes down third time with total forgiveness for the Jewish people with the second tablets. After he comes down, they get this mitzvah of building the Mishkan. So according to Rambam and Rashi, it seems like building the Mishkan was a kind of atonement for the golden calf episode. Because ideally, we do not, we Jews should be on a high level to serve an invisible God in an invisible way without requiring any buildings or any kind of reminder of God's presence in the world. We should remember God's presence without any kind of physical reminder. And that's the opinion of Rambam. However, Rambam Nachmanides says, no, the idea of the Mishkan superseded, came before the sin of the golden calf, just like it does according to our parashiot. And why? Because the, goal, the Mishkan is actually a symbol that God wanted in his world. God wants to have a dwelling in every single domain, every single domain, every single dimension. Hashem created many dimensions, and in every dimension, Hashem rests. There's a presence of Hashem in every dimension, and therefore the, the Mishkan has serves a tremendous um, mirror image of different things in the dimensions above. So these, it's, a, it's something which God wanted to be in this world in the first place. According to Rambam, Hashem did not have any intention of building a Mishkan for himself or a Mishkan for the people to see and remind them of God's presence because he assumed that the people would remember his presence without any physical representation at all. When he saw that they sinned with a golden calf, he said, better they have a Mishkan to represent me than a calf. And therefore there's nothing to represent God. It's just an empty building. However, if you want to see God's presence in action, you go to this building and you'll see certain miracles in that building. And that's one of the things that we, we cry for on Tisha B'Av, the day on which two temples were destroyed, that today we have no way of knowing physically, of seeing physically differences to represent that God's presence rests among us. In those days, you go to the Bedevi Dash, you see certain miracles. For example, the smoke of the altar would go straight up despite all the rain, despite all the wind, the, the shape of the fire was the shape of a line, it says, on the altar. There were different representations of miracles going on every day in the, in the Beit HaMikdash. And there were no flies in the Beit HaMikdash, despite all the, all the meat over there, sacrificial meat. And so there were many miracles going on in the Beit HaMikdash. You would feel the difference. You would feel the spirituality in the Beit HaMikdash, the presence. You'd feel the presence of God in the Beit HaMikdash. You'd feel the presence of God in the Mishkan. There was more of a concentrated presence of God. Obviously, God is everywhere, but there's more of a concentrated presence in the Mishkan. So therefore, we cry on Tisha B'Av, the fact that the temples were destroyed because we have no way of, in this world, of feeling that presence of Hashem. Sometimes we feel it, most times we don't, and, but in the better Midash, we feel it, we feel it. And it says, and we say, now, Yom Kippur prayers, it says, when the Kohen Gadol would say, Shem and Mepharash, God's name, every single Jew would fall flat on their faces without wanting to fall flat. They would just automatically fall flat when they heard God's name. It was so awe-inspiring. The Vedic Midrash was so awe-inspiring that a person would search for God. You find God inside there. You find the presence of God. You feel the presence of Hashem. Unfortunately, we don't have it today. We don't feel the presence of God. Maybe if you go to the Kotel, you may feel something spiritual more than anywhere else. But inside the Vedic Midrash, you would feel it. Okay, so when God's presence is in the Vedic Midrash, you'd feel it. And that was the biggest proof that God exists. So today we don't have that. We have to imagine Hashem's presence. Today we're on a high level, I think, spiritually. And today we know there are many things in this world that are invisible that we can we know exist. For example, we know gravity is invisible. We feel the effects. We know that there's electrons, neutrons, and, and, and particles, all kinds of particles, of waves around us. 
we cannot see, electromagnetic spectrum, um, light waves and uh, radio waves and all kinds of waves around us we can't see. So today it's much easier to believe in a God that we cannot see. In those days, it was very, very hard to believe in a God that you cannot see. And also to serve God in an invisible way, which we do today. How do we serve God? We serve God by praying to God. We pray to God, that service of God, it's It's called service of the heart. We pray to God invisibly. So we pray to God, we, we actually serve God in an invisible kind of way. So today we can understand that on a level, we can understand that Ramam seems to say, that is the ideal. The ideal is to serve our invisible God, to believe in an invisible God with no physical reminders. We don't need physical reminders. That's the ideal. That's what God really originally wanted. However, when the Jews sit with the golden calf, Hashem said, you know what? They're not on the level. They need something physical and therefore they should build a Mishkan so that they'll realize that my presence is amongst them. Now, however, it's interesting because if you remember on the, on the southern wall in, Beit, in the shul in Eitzachayim in Hyde Park, the famous line from the, the words of the Torah, you will make for me a sanctuary and I will dwell among you. It doesn't say I will dwell in it. It says I will dwell among you. So we see like the Rambam says, the main mitzvah is to build a sanctuary among us. How do you build a sanctuary among us? And the answer is the sanctuary is our homes. Our homes should be our mishkan, not the mishkan, not to build a special building, but our homes where we live, that should be our Mishkan. The homes that we live should be our Mishkan. It's interesting because at the beginning of this week's parasha of Ayakel, the Torah tells them to build a Mishkan. And then it says, but keep Shabbat. Build my sanctuary, but keep Shabbat. Why build a sanctuary, but keep Shabbat? What's Shabbat? Why is Shabbat more important than the Mishkan? We don't build a temple on Shabbat. Shabbat is supreme. Shabbat reigns supreme. The only reason to break Shabbat is Pekuach Nefesh. What's Pekuach Nefesh? To save a life. It's so important to save a life. Saving a life is a primary value that supersedes all the other values in Judaism except for three. Idolatry, adultery, and immorality. Uh, sorry, idolatry, immorality, and murder. Idolatry, immorality, and murder. The supreme value is life. Apart from these three things, idolatry, immorality, and murder, that if someone says to, to bow down to the idol, you've got to give your life. If someone says to create immorality, you've got to give your life. If someone says to murder someone else, the person should give their life or self-defense or other things. Okay, try and get away with it. Okay. So the Torah says, build the Mishkan. However, keep Shabbat. What is the, what is the concept? The Torah then tells us six days you should work. On the seventh day shall be to you a holy day of rest. So it's striking about the inclusion of the Shabbat command. That's where we learn all the laws of Shabbat. We learn all the laws of Shabbat from this week's parasha of Ayakel, where Hashem puts the building of sanctuary and he tells us not to break Shabbat. So from there we learn out that all the different kinds of work that went into building the Mishkan, that went into building the sanctuary, is forbidden to be done on Shabbat. And the rabbis learned from there the 39 forms of work and the seventh chapter of the Masechet Shabbat, of the Tractate of Shabbat, you'll find a list of the 39 forms of work which are prohibited to be done on Shabbat. Why are they prohibited to be done? Where do we learn it from? What is the source? This, uh, these 39 are not explicit in the Torah. The only ones that are explicit in the Torah is the law of not carrying on Shabbat, that there's no roof. And number two is not to light a fire on Shabbat. Otherwise, 
all the other 39 forms of work are implicit in this parasha. Where is it implicit? Because the Torah says, you will build my Mishkan, but you will keep Shabbat. So we see that whatever went into building Mishkan is not allowed to be done on Shabbat. From there, we learn 39 forms of work, which are not allowed to be done on Shabbat, which is found on the seventh chapter of Tractate Shabbat. You'll find all these 39 forms of work listed in the second Mishnah on the, in the seventh chapter of Shabbat. So these are the words. So now what's Shabbat and the Mishkan? What is the connection between Shabbat and the Mishkan? Is there a connection between Shabbat and the Mishkan? We find this, this verse is also in Parsha Kitisa, last week's Parsha, where the exact text occurs. Where the, the Parsha talks about the anointing oil and then the incense of sweet spices. And suddenly right in the middle of everything, the text says, and God says to Moshe, speak unto the children of Israel, you will keep my Shabbat. There's a sign between me and you throughout the generations. So again, we have a similar pasuk, similar verse in last week's parasha that you will keep Shabbat in the middle of building different parts of the Mishkan, in the middle of building the incense, making the incense. So Shabbat is critical. Shabbat is such a pivot of Judaism, the center of holiness in Jewish life. In today's day and age, there's no question it's Shabbat. The center of Jewish life today, spiritual life, is Shabbat, a whole week. The Benish High says an interesting thing. He says there's seven days in the week. Don't think that the first day is Yom Rishon and the last day is Yom Shabbat. The first day is the first day and the second and the seventh day is Shabbat. No, he says the week really starts on Wednesday. That's the first time you can say Shabbat Shalom. Wednesday, Thursday, Friday build up to Shabbat. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Tuesday is the last day you can say Havdalah. If you couldn't say Havdalah before Tuesday, you can say it till Tuesday. Imagine a person couldn't say Havdalah on Saturday night, Monday Shabbat. He can still say Havdalah or she can still say Havdalah on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. Wow, he can still say Havdalah till Tuesday. So we see a Benish Chai says Shabbat is really the middle of the week. The whole week revolves around Shabbat. Shabbat is the center and surrounded by three days before and three days after. Wednesday, Thursday, Friday before Shabbat. The proof is you can say Shabbat Shalom starting Wednesday. And then Sunday, Monday, Tuesday are still getting energy from the previous Shabbat. So you can still say Havdalah till Tuesday. So we see that the week is really starting. It started already Wednesday. So we can still say Shabbat Shalom for the next Shabbat. And we're looking forward to next Shabbat. We're preparing for the next Shabbat from Wednesday. And then we're getting the fruits of the, of the Shabbat on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. We're getting the energies from the previous Shabbat. Interesting idea. The week revolves around Shabbat. Shabbat is not the last day of the week. It's the middle of the week. That's a Benish Chai's beautiful idea. But the idea is that Shabbat is the source of all spirituality. The person's got to know Shabbat is sanctification of time. We are sanct- this, is, this is an amazing idea, a revolutionary idea, the sanctification of time. Imagine, I don't think any other religion has this concept of sanctification of time, sanctifying time. How do you sanctify time? Shabbat. Remember the Shabbat to sanctify it. How do you remember Shabbat? So the rabbi say by saying Kiddush. When, we, when Shabbat comes in, we say Kiddush. Rabbi says, similarly, we say Havdalah when Shabbat leaves. We are sanctifying this island of time, an island in time. Imagine. Time has an island of holiness. This island of holiness is Shabbat. Shabbat is the center of holiness in Jewish life. And the first aspect of creation endowed with holiness by God was Shabbat. And uh, so this way we find Shabbat. In two parts, you are linked to the sanctuary, which also symbolizes sanctification of space. So the sanctification of space, of place, which is the Mishkan, which is interesting because the Mishkan was portable. So what does that mean? That means the Mishkan was sanctified wherever it went. 
it's a portable sanctuary for God because God is portable. God is everywhere. God goes everywhere. God is everywhere. You can reach God anywhere, anywhere in the world. And since the sanctuary was built outside Israel, it's not Israel, the Holy Land. It was outside Israel. Eventually it gets to Israel. And eventually they build the temple, a fixed place in the Holy City of Jerusalem. But the sanctuary is built outside Israel. Anywhere can be. Hashem's presence rests everywhere. The Jewish people wills the presence to rest. The Hashem's presence rests everywhere. You build a synagogue anywhere outside Israel, God's presence rests there as well. It's called a sanctuary, a small sanctuary. And the laws of the temple apply in small sanctuaries as well. The laws of honor. You, know, you can't run inside the temple. You can't run inside a shul. You can't talk inside the temple, you know, uh, talk which is uh, frivolous. You can't talk inside a shul, frivolous talk. All these laws apply just like they applied in the temple. Why? Because it's a small sanctuary. Any space that you sanctify to God, everyone in the houses should have a space. You can't go to shul. A woman doesn't need to go to shul. She can pray at home. That space is holy space. The space where you have your sfarim. The space where you have your Shabbat meal. That's sanctified space. A person going to know that the house is, the Torah says, build me a sanctuary and I will dwell among you. You is our houses. You is our own bodies. We have to set aside a place for Hashem in our minds. Sanctify our minds. When we pray, a person's got to devote all their thoughts to Hashem that is sanctifying their minds. When you devote all your thoughts to Hashem, Hashem is resting in you. You are the sanctuary of Hashem. When your house is uh, doing mitzvot, you're full of mitzvot inside your house, your house becomes a sanctuary to Hashem. When you're engaged in physical actions between man and wife, it's holy, kirushin. And that is also a physical space for Hashem. So we have to create these spaces for Hashem in our lives. Shabbat is a spiritual space of time. Um, and the Benedict Dash was a spiritual space, literally in, in, in a three-dimensional uh, space, in, uh, in a place, sanctuary, sanctu sanctification of place. And in Yom Kippur, it came together three things. The high priest, a holy person, Inside the Holy of Holies, inside a holy space on Yom Kippur, which is a holy time. So space, time, and person came together in Yom Kippur. If we could do that more often, sanctify ourselves, our, our person, sanctify our spaces, our homes, and sanctify our time when we keep Shabbat. So Bezrat Hashem, that's really a goal. That's the Jewish goal, is sanctify everything we have. And this goal, Jewish goal is based on Yaakov's ladder. Yaakov's ladder, the imagery of Jacob's ladder. It was a ladder going up to heaven, angels climbing up and down the ladder, but it was based firmly on the earth. This is our mission. Our mission is to join the spiritual world, the heavens above, with the physical worlds down below with this ladder. We are the ladder between heaven and earth. Human beings are the ladder between heaven and earth. We have to join these two things, the physical dimension, our physical actions, and the spiritual dimension. And we do this by every time you eat, that's the physical dimension, we say a bracha. We elevate the food to a spiritual dimension. Every time we do mundane actions, there's always some kind of spiritual thought. Our uh, mezuzah on the door of the house, mezuzah on the door of the office. The mezuzah, you find everywhere you go in Israel, you have mezuzah everywhere. Thank God, thank God. See, the Jews are scrupulous. doesn't matter who they are. Everyone has a mezuzah. Everyone has the mezuzah. The only thing we have to make sure of is the mezuzah is kosher. That's all. Just make sure you buy them and you have it checked. When you buy a mezuzah, you have it checked. When a, when a man puts a tefillin on his hand, he is sanctifying his hands. Amazing. Put a tefillin on your head, you're sanctifying the head. So these are things. When a woman lights a, a Shabbat candle, she is sanctifying light. Tremendous potential for sanctification. We are the factory for transforming physicality into spirituality. You know, there's an interesting mitzvah. 
now that we're entering the month of Nisan. Interesting mitzvah is what's called Birkat Ha'ilanot. I don't know if you're going to be able to do this in America today, in, in New Jersey at least, or New York, because of such a cold winter. I don't, know if, I don't know if you have the fruit trees which are blossoming yet, but hopefully towards the end of the month, the fruit trees will blossom and you'll be able to say this bracha that Hashem created all these physical things for us, for our enjoyment. And the fact that we're saying a bracha on these physical things, like a fruit tree which is blossoming, we're elevating it. We are sanctifying it. We are elevating from the physical realm into the spiritual realm. Everything you say a bracha on, you're elevating. Everything you eat with a bracha is elevating the physicality into spirituality. And that's the idea of the ladder of Jacob, raising up the physicality to the spirituality. And that was the idea inside the temple, taking all these animals and sacrificing them to God is taking the physicality and, and uh, elevating it to spirituality. That's the idea. The idea of Judaism is to take physicality and elevate it to spirituality. And we are the mechanisms. We, um, our, the Jewish people, are the mechanism to elevate physicality to spirituality. Unfortunately, we can also do the reverse. We can take spirituality and bring it down to physicality. When a person sins, when a person does something bad with the physical objects, then we degrade them. Instead of elevating them, we degrade them. And then we have to do tikkun, we have to do teshuvah, we have to bring them back up, we have to raise them again. So that's our job. Our job is to raise physical things and to raise the sparks of, of holiness in the world to a high level. And those are the sparks that Adam and Rishon, Adam, the first man with his sin, uh, brought down, and we have to raise them up again. Okay, anyway, that's the idea of elevating space, elevating time, and elevating people spirituality in all three parts of creation the roots of the sanctuary go back to Yaakov so he said it's a ladder he made a vow to God and he said this place is going to be the house of God he's the first one to predict the Bede Bittash. and in fact on that place we built the Bede Bittash twice and on that place we're going to build the third Bede Bittash as well soon. so unlike the spiritual systems in which the seeker must bring their soul up to the highest heavens, regardless of where his body may find itself on the earthly plane, or transform his emotions to so that nothing in this world has any meaning whatsoever. Yaakov's dream teaches that the ladder which reaches heavenward must have its base firmly established on the earth. Judaism's spirituality rests on a dynamic relationship between the earth and the heaven, which is the angels going up and down. That's the, the mechanism, the dynamic between there's a relationship between the earth and the heaven. Spiritual energy is going up, spiritual energy is coming down, uh, signified by the angels going up and down. There's a fascinating debate between Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai um, as to what was created first, and hence what determines the priority. For Beit Hillel, the earth was created before the heavens, which is interesting, and Beit Shammai was the heavens created before the earth. So what are they arguing about? How can the heavens be created before the earth or the earth be created before the heavens? Obviously, the uh, God's uh, uh, heaven, heavenly abode was the first. There's no question about that. The question is, what comes first in, in prior, uh, prominence? What is more prominent, the heaven or the earth? Is the heaven more prominent or the earth more prominent? And Rabbi Shimon Baruch High answers that the two, heaven and earth, stand together. What does that mean? That we need both. We need both physicality, we need spirituality. And uh, this, uh, this is interesting because I just want to go through some of the symbolism of Shabbat, how to link it to the, the holy Mishkan, the holy, holy temple. The showbread used in the temple is found in the form today on Shabbat. Two halot. We have two halot. So the temple had 12 halot. You know, the Benish says, interestingly, 
uh, every time you do Kiddush, you actually have 12 halot on the table. So, you know, 12 halot, wasn't it? Big halot, no, 12 pitot. You put them, there's a certain arrangement, uh, which the Benish Chai describes. You read, read the Benish Chai, you'll see his diagram over there, how to put the halot on the table, 12 halot. It's interesting, number 12, how do you get it? Now, where do you see number 12 in the Torah? It's the permutations of the name Yudke Vavke. Yudke Vavke is uh, four factorial, but there's two letters of the same, hey, hey, so you divide it by two. So Yudke Vavke is four, four letters, can be, uh, can be arranged four times three times two, which is 24, but two letters are the same, so there's 12 different combinations of Yudke Vavke. So interesting, which is the reason why there's 12 tribes, which is the reason why the 12 months of the year, because there are 12 different arrangements of Yudke Vavke, and these 12 loaves represent these 12 different arrangements of Yudke Vavke and the permutations of Yudke Vavke. Very interesting, uh, very esoteric. And so we have this, this idea of showbread on our table on Shabbat. So then we're linking this idea of Shabbat to the Beit HaMikdash. In the temple, there was a minarah. And again, on Shabbat, we light candles. We light candles to be light to the world. Uh, number three, in the temple, the priests took part in peace offerings. The entire meal during Shabbat resembles the peace offerings, person making peace with their families, getting together with their friends and eating, which is like a peace offering, making peace by eating, eating food. And when we cut the challah, we dip it into salt again. And the better we dash, everything which was brought on the altar had to be dipped in salt. It's called the Brit Melach, the covenant of salt. Why is it called the covenant of salt? Because salt in those days before refrigeration was used as a mechanism to make meat last. Meat would not last. You had to salt, uh, hence uh, salt beef. You had to salt the meat, you had to salt the fish for the meat. Everything was pickled, everything was salted for making it last. However, the salt was considered a mechanism for everlasting. So you had a covenant of salt, which is a covenant of everlasting. So we put salt on our table on Shabbat. We dip the chal into salt. The, the Benish Chai brings down the Arizal to dip it into the salt three times. We dip the bread into salt three times because salt has this idea of it keeps things going. It's a defense mechanism against the three tears of Asaph. It says when Yaakov tricked Asaph, Asaph cried three tears. We dip the bread into salt three times to defend ourselves from this um, accusation of the three tears of Asaph. Interesting, interesting material. Anyway, we have salt on the table, just like we had in the Bethany Dash. So to the wine, which we drink Kiddush, reminds us of the wine that was offered on the altar Every offering had to bring wine. It's called Yayin Nesef Misachim. It was poured into a hole in the, in the altar. The priest wore special clothing. So too on Shabbat, we wear our Shabbat clothing. On Friday night, we come back from Shul and we bless our children. Sfardim, we do it straight after Kiddush. Ashkenazim do it straight away. I think when, as soon as they come back, they, they, they bless their children. Sfardim say, no, you're going to do it after you drink some wine. You feel really good. And when you feel really good, that's when you bless your children. Anyway, it's a similar idea. And we use the same words that the priest would use in the Beit HaMikdash, the priestly blessing that he blessed. They would bless the Jews every single day. We use to bless our children. So again, it's a reminder of what we did in the Beit HaMikdash. The Shabbat prayers are, are corresponding to all the offerings in the Beit HaMikdash on Shabbat. They have an extra Musaf prayer on Shabbat because they bring an extra offering called the Musaf offering on Shabbat. So again, we have all these different, seven different things which we do on Shabbat that remind us of what they did in the, in the temple. So why? Because the temple, we said, is sanctification of place, and Shabbat is a temple in, space, in time. The Shabbat is a temple in time, and our bodies are a temple in space. 
So space, time, and person. Space, time, and person. So it's very important. We have 25 hours every Shabbat to experience holiness. 25 hours to experience holiness of time. Amazing, amazing. It's a beautiful concept. So we have, uh, as I mentioned, that this week's parasha discusses also the Mishkan. And the question we have, we have a lot of questions to answer. Number one, why is this building of the Mishkan in the book of Exodus, which talks about the coming out of Egypt? What's the connection between the Mishkan, the building of the sanctuary, and coming out of Egypt? What's the connection? Really, I would think the building of the Mishkan should be in the next book of the Torah, which is Vayikra, because the book of Vayikra is a book about the priests and about the sacrifices, purely about things that they did in the temple. So put the building of the Mishkan in the book of Vayikra. What's it doing in the book of Shemot? What's it doing in the book of Exodus? That's the first question. Second question. What can we learn about the significance of all these Mishkan details? The fact that four parashiot of the Torah, imagine, four parashiot of the Torah are devoted exclusively to the issue of building this Mishkan, which is overwhelming in the context of the Torah is very concise. It doesn't waste time. It doesn't waste words. So why does it spend four parashiot on the construction of the Mishkan? This gets more ink as the whole 210 years of servitude in Egypt. You know, the whole 210 years of servitude in Egypt is uh, played over Pasha Chamot, Vaera Bo. Bishalach already was sent away, so three parashiot. We have four parashiot dealing with building of the Mishkan, more than the exodus from Egypt. So, and then we have another question, number four. Why is the sin of the golden calf in the middle of the discussion of the tabernacle Right, plum in the middle. So two parashiot before that, discussing the Mishkan. Two parashiot after that, discussing the Mishkan. And in the middle, we have the Moshe Rabbeinu going up to Har Sinai. And then the sin of the golden calf. What's it doing over there in the middle? So let's talk about the Ramban's answer to why is the building of the Mishkan in the book of Exodus, the book of Shemot. And he says, look what the Ramban says. Beautiful idea. The Ramban Nachmanides who lived just after the Rambam passed away. Actually, he was born while the Rambam was still alive, and he lived straight after, uh, after the Rambam passed away. And he would actually defend the Rambam against the attacks of other rabbis. We, we discussed that when we talked about the Rambam. So go back to your notes on the Rambam uh, class, and you'll see, and we discussed this, Ram, this is Ramban, Nachmanides. Look what he says. The patriarchs, the forefathers, and the four mothers, the four mothers, literally there were four mothers and four fathers, F-O-R-E, not F-O-U-R, Abraham, Yitzhak, Yaakov, Sarah, Rivka, Rachel, Leah. They were patriarchs created in their home and family, a place of connection and service to Hashem. This is amazing. Their homes were the sanctuary. Their homes were the connection to God inside their homes. The Midrash describes their dwellings as having a manifestation of divine presence resting upon them. Their homes were like a little Mishkan. When the Jews went into exile in Egypt, this connection was lost. Our homes in Egypt were not sanctuaries for God. Our homes in Egypt lost that holiness that our forefathers had. That their, their tents were homes for God, and our tents are not homes for God in Egypt. The redemption and the giving of the Torah were designed to return us to this level of our patriarchs, this level of direct personal connection with Hashem, so now we can say that we are like the patriarchs. We have a tent where God's presence rests, just like the patriarchs had tents 
on which God's presence rested. We now have a tent, at least one tent. The idea was every Jew's tent would be like that, but after the sin of the golden calf, it became one tent for all the Jews that God's presence would rest. Therefore, the culmination of the Exodus is not just leaving Egypt. You know, there's a famous movement in the 18th century called the Bilu movement. It was a movement of Jews back to Israel. One of the first movements was a secular movement of Jews back to Israel um, from Europe, from uh, Russia and Poland. They're called the Bilu movement. Why is it called the Bilu movement? Because Bilu in Hebrew is Bet Yud Lavit Vav. Bet Yaakov Lechu Venelcha, which is why Hashem says, the house of Jacob, Lechu Venelcha, go and let us go. Bet Yaakov Lechu Venelcha, the house of Jacob should go. Where are we going to go? So what they did is the Bilu movements were secular movements. So they skipped out the next words of the Pasuk, of the verse. The next words, the next words of the verse, Bet Yaakov Lechu Venelcha, or Hashem, in the light of God, we are meant to go, we're not meant to walk alone. A Jew never walks alone. We always have to walk in the light of God. We should always walk in the light of God and not walk. When a Jew is never alone, we're always with the light of God. So in the sanctuary, they have the light of God with them, which was illustrated by the pillar of cloud in the day and the pillar of fire by night. Amazing, amazing. Imagine the, uh, the visual effects. Imagine the visual effects every day. You'd see this pillar of cloud. There's a GPS system. The first GPS system in history was a guard position system. Uh, GPS system was the pillar of cloud at night. It was a pillar of fire. Wow, that would be amazing to watch. A pillar of fire. Wherever the Jews go in the desert, you had a pillar of fire showing that God's presence was with them all the time. And when, when the pillar of fire stopped, it rested over the, bait, the, the Mishkan. It rested over the Mishkan. In the daytime, pillar of cloud. In the nighttime, pillar of fire. Amazing, amazing. So again, it's proving that God's presence rested with them. Um, so the, there's two approaches to the service of God. Before the sin of the golden calf, people were on an extremely high spiritual level because they said, we will uh, do and then we will listen to Hashem. We will voluntarily undertake this connection with God. In that circumstance, there was no need for a detailed list of steps of building the Mishkan. However, after the golden calf, that relationship was lost. To achieve that degree of closeness to, to Hashem, there was a need for a step-by-step manual of building a place where the connection with, with God would be revealed and the connection with God would be reconnected. One can compare this to a relationship to a marriage. When everything is fine and the original love and romance was never impacted, a couple can successfully navigate a close connection. But if something goes wrong, then an outside party must now provide direction for how to recreate the bond. Or, or they need to read a book, a manual. And, you know, we all have how-to manuals uh, or uh, marriage for, uh, for idiots or whatever it is, the new book or whatever, the, all these books of marriage, okay? So depending on the damage done is the degree of direction needed. So a person needs direction. So the same thing applies over here. Before the Golden Calf episode, they didn't need any direction of building a spiritual relation with God. It was like a natural thing. But after they assumed the Golden Calf, they needed a, a direction, a very, very... Uh, highly detailed direction of how to build this Mishkan to reconnect to God. For this reason, the construction of the Mishkan is repeated. There were two versions of the tabernacle, as we said, the original tabernacle, the homes of our patriarchs and our matriarchs. Judaism is not about temples, but it's more about people and families, each one of us. Our houses should be a Mishkan. Very hard, very hard. It's very hard to sanctify one's home. 
It's very hard to sanctify one's home. How does a person sanctify one's home? If one's home is a home where there's Torah learning inside the home. If there's a home where there's a home where the brachot are being said, if there's a home where the children come home and they sing songs of praise to God, if there's a home where Shabbat is kept in detail, if there's a home where brachot are being said and prayers are being recited, that's a home which is a mishkan. That home is a mishkan. And that's the home we are meant to create. If there's a home with shalom bait, there's a home where husband and wife don't fight, but they get along. There's a home where the children listen to their parents. If there's a home where there's respect for parents, that home is a mishkan. That's, what, that's our job. We don't have a temple today. Our job today is to build this physical mishkan, our own mishkan in our own homes, but as will all be successful. So our homes should be sanctified space. Each person's table is to be an altar. Our lights are meant to be a mineral. Our bedroom is the holy of holies. Amazing concept. However, the Jewish people built the golden calf, thinking it to be an intermediary between them and God. As a result, they lost that direct connection and they needed an external tabernacle. They need an external mikdash to recreate this connection. And therefore, the building instructions were written in the Torah once before the sin, during the pre-sin connection with God. And now they are repeated because the level of connection was different. So we lost this connection of making our houses holy. Now we have to build a holy building for Hashem, which is pure holiness. Okay, so we are going to go into details now, the different uh, vessels inside the temple. Before that, there's also a very interesting topic in this week's parasha um, in Pekudei, in the second half of the parasha Pekudei. Um, so we are, we said there's going to be two separate this week. The first separate are going to read two parashot Vayakel Pekudei, because it's not a leap year this year, otherwise we'd spread them apart. Um, but today we have 50, 54 weeks in the year, of which Oh, sorry, we have less weeks. Uh, we're in the Jewish calendar. 354 days in the year, so 365. We're 11 days shorter than the solar calendar. The solar calendar has 52 weeks, and we have 11 days shorter, so we have like two weeks less. And then whenever there's two weeks less in the, in the, in the, week, in the year, normally you can add a leap year when it's uh, Pesach. is not in the spring anymore. It falls back into the, into, the, uh, into the winter. And then we add an extra leap month, and then we have an extra four weeks. And then we can spread the parashiot over more time. But we have less time this, this year, and therefore the parashiot are, some of the parashiot are stuck together. This week is an example of two parashiot together by Kelpikudei. And we read another Torah, which is Parashat HaChodesh. It is because of the importance of the month of Nisan. We are announcing the month of Nisan, which is this Motzeh Shabbat Sunday, is Rosh Chodesh, one day Rosh Chodesh for Nisan. Our sages decreed that a special section of topical interest to the usual reading of the Torah should be added. Which is a chodesh hazeh lachem rosh chodeshim. This month will be for you, Hashem says. This is the first mitzvah given to the Jewish people. Not the first mitzvah given to humanity, but the first mitzvah given to the Jewish people. We have other mitzvah given to humanity, Puravu, other mitzvah given before that to Abraham Yitzhak Yaakov, circumcision, Gideon Nasheh, were given to Abraham Yitzhak Yaakov earlier on. But this is the first mitzvah given to the Jewish people, which is sanctification of time. Again, the idea of sanctification time is not just Shabbat, it's also the idea of sanctifying Rosh Chodesh, which is the first of the month. And the first month of the Jewish year, there's actually four of them, the Mishnah says in Rosh Hashanah, um, it's not just Rosh Hashanah, which is the normal, we call it the first of the month of the year. But Nisan is meant to be the first month of the year because that's the first month of our freedom. Now the first mitzvah given to, to Hashem is this concept of 
sanctifying time. Sanctifying our time. So hard to sanctify our time. Don't waste time. Sanctify your time. Use your time wisely. It's one of the few things you can ever, you can never get back. We can never get back time we waste. It's unfortunate. We have to do Teshuvah. The Vilna Yon says before he died, he did Teshuvah for every second of his life he wasted. You know, he wrote, uh, he wrote a math textbook in the bathroom. <laughs> so he didn't want to spend his time in the bathroom uh, for no reason. So he actually wrote, you're not allowed to think Torah in the, in the bathroom. So he wrote a math textbook in the bathroom, which is pretty much, it's um, like, uh, I don't know, it's like, uh, what is it? Uh, I'd say, I don't know, today it'd be like uh, 10th grade math, geometry, algebra, that kind of thing. And uh, he wrote in the bathroom. Then at, at the end of his life, he did the shuba. He says, I wasted so much time in the bathroom writing this math textbook that could have uh, learned more Torah outside the bathroom. I don't know. It's a, it's a very high level to count your minutes of how much time you wasted, how much time we waste. Uh, we have to do teshuva. Sanctify time. This month will be for you a new month. First mitzvah given to the Torah. We have the mitzvah of sanctifying the months. At least we did when we had a, a son had written in Israel. Today, all the months have been computed for us for 2,000 years by Hillel the second. Hillel, not the first Hillel, not Hillel as the first Hillel by the second Hillel, who was uh, uh, one of the children, uh, grandchildren of Yehuda Nasi, the prince Judah, who wrote the Mishnah. So much later on, he, he knew that there's not going to be a Sanhedrin in Israel. They're not going to be able to sanctify the new moon based on testimony of the witnesses who see the new moon. He actually came along and did a mathematical uh, formulas for so creating uh, the Jewish calendar for the next uh, nearly 2,000 years till the year 6,000. Our calendar goes to the year 6,000. Everything is computed already for us, all the, the Rosh Hodeshes, all the holidays. There's a, there's a cycle of 19 years. Every, every 19 years, there's a cycle, and everything's computed. Okay, so we have a... So it's interesting, the Pasuk, this month will be for you. The words Lachem, Lamed Chaf Mem also spell out the words Melech. This month will be for you a Melech. Lachem Melech. Same letters as the word. Melech will be a king. Nisan is the king of the months. Why? It's the month of our redemption. We're going to talk about it next week. Start talking about Pesach, the month of our redemption, and how we celebrate our Pesach. Just to give you a little bit of a uh, prelude. We celebrate Pesach with a barbecue. Can you imagine? We celebrate Pesach with a barbecue with a it's not really a, a, a hamburger or beef burger. It's more like a shish kebab. Shish kebab with lettuce inside unleavened bread. The first burger in history to go. The first uh, shish kebab burger in history. We celebrate our freedom with the first uh, barbecue. Here we are. Everyone's celebrating freedom with barbecues today. Fourth uh, of July in America, the big barbecue day in Israel now. Uh, Independence Day is becoming a very big barbecue day, but we have to realize the first Independence Day was Pesach. Pesach is our Independence Day. Pesach is the day that we became free from slavery. And what is our first mitzvah? And that is sanctify time. Because a slave has no free time. A slave's time is the master's time. We never have free time. Now we have free time. What do we have to do? Torah says, sanctify it. It's like a person who's uh, like me, a person who's on... Uh, Who's retired? What do you do? And the answer is try and sanctify as much of your time as you can. Go to Shirin, learn Torah, pray. Uh, don't waste your time. Go to go to Yeshiva. Now's the time. Person's retired, they have nothing to do. Use it wisely, 
and a person who's busy also should find time, should fix times every day to learn. So, sanctify your time. It's a very important idea. Nisan. Nisan is not a Jewish word. It's a Babylonian word. The names of our months of Judaism, our months in the Torah never had names. It's the first month, the second month, the third month, same thing, days of the, of the week. Never had names. The Jewish law, there's no names for these days. It's the first day of Yom Rishon, Yom Shani, Yom Shlishi, only Shabbat. Shabbat is rest, that's it. Uh, the Jewish months never had names. The first month, the, the, the first month, the Torah always calls this, the first month is Nisan. We don't realize that. The month where our freedom started, where we're a free nation is Nisan. We must honor Nisan more than any other month. That's why we have a special reading this week. This reading also reminds people that Pesach is quickly approaching so they can make preparations. So you all know, this is very fascinating, based on Parsha Pekudei, which we're going to read this week, the second Parsha we're going to read, that our daily Amidah, the daily standing up prayer, the Amidah, which is finally called Amidah, Ashkenazi called Shmona Esrei, 18 blessings, it's really 19 today, they had an extra blessing called the Shmona Esrei, and uh, later on they had another blessing, which is called uh, Laminim, about the Minim, which is the 19th blessing, we find a very deep insight into the Amidah in this week's parasha. The repetition of a phrase beyond the logical minimum requirement. Normally, we can dismiss it in colloquial speech or even literature as an oversight. Say the same phrase over and over again. However, if the Torah repeats a phrase many times, there must be some kind of message. In this week's portion, we find one phrase repeated no less than 18 times. This phrase is, Kasher Tziva Hashem Et Moshe. Just like Hashem commanded Moshe, they built the sanctuary exactly as Hashem commanded Moshe. It's repeated 18 times. This Pasuk, the Balaturim, who is a medieval Spanish scholar, Rabbi Yaakov Balaturim, who is the son of the Rosh, he draws attention to this striking feature of the parasha and accounts for it the following way. It's amazing. Two weeks ago, we read, of the Jews making the golden calf, when Hashem threatened to annihilate them for this crime, Moshe and his love for his people, he says, Have you erased the Jewish people? Erase my name from your book. If you don't forgive their sin, please erase my name. I don't want to be mentioned in your book. I don't, I don't even want to be mentioned in the Torah. For this heroic self-sacrifice, the, the reward was this constant mention of his name. Hashem et Moshe, 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 18 times. Moshe was mentioned 18 times. Chai, 18 is a chai. He was given life. He was put in the Torah 18 times extra. Furthermore, the Balatur man. So that's the first reason why it's mentioned 18 times. It's Pasuk. He has the 18 blessings of the Shemona Esra. We instituted corresponding to these 18 times of repetition as God had commanded Moshe. While the 19th prayer, which was added later on against the heretics, corresponds to the phrase as God commanded, so they did. The 90 phrases in the Torah contain 113 words. The sum total of the words of the end of the blessing of each paragraph of the Shemona Esra is also 190, 113. And it is the word lev, heart, appears in the Torah 113 times. There's a leakage over here between the 113 words of these verses, these 19 verses, 113 words in the ends of the blessing of all the Shemona Esrei, and 113 times that the word lev, which means heart, appears in the Torah. In other words, when a person prays, your heart's got to be in it. You've got to put your heart in it. The question's obvious. Besides the numerical values, by the way, the Balatrim is full of gematriot. If you, if you enjoy gematriot, numerical values, 
you got to read the Perush of the Balaturim. It's not, it's not actually the whole Perush of Balaturim. The Balaturim was actually a book he wrote, a commentary of Pshat on the Torah. But unfortunately, they took out the, the, the highlights of these Gematriot and they just put it in the Chumash. We don't have that whole book. You can have to buy the whole book separately. The Balaturim is a whole book, commentary of the Torah. And you have to buy it separately, but they took out all these numerical values and they put it in the Torah. That's a beautiful numerical value of this week's parasha. The question is, besides the numerical values, which the rabbis say, gematriot parperot lechokhmah, that we say in Pirkei Avot, gematriot, numerical values are just a little introduction to wisdom. They are not the main wisdom. So what does that mean? What is the prayer going to do with it? They did exactly what Hashem commanded. In other words, they removed their egos. When a person prays, we have to remove our egos. It's not what we want. We're submitting to God's will. When a person prays, yeah, I want this Hashem, I want this Hashem, I want this Hashem. But the end is, Hashem, whatever you give me, I'll take Hashem, it's up to you. I'm submitting my ego. I'm removing my ego. I'm going to do whatever you say. I'm removing my ego. Yes, this is what I want. This is my list. But I submit to you, Hashem. So this is a very important idea. This is a success. The Rekanati, Menachem Rekanati, one of the famous philosophers, he says this is the secret of successful prayer. The idea that a person submits their will to Hashem and says, you know what, when I pray Hashem, give me whatever's good for me. In, in the end, you're the final arbiter. Even if you don't answer my prayers, understand it's not a no. It's just you didn't feel it was right for me. So we have to submit to Hashem. Do what God wants. If you do it, if you make your will his will, he will make his will your will. So Bezrat Hashem, Hashem will, as we read in this week's parasha, all our houses should become small sanctuaries like our forefathers. God's presence should rest among our houses, inside our houses, which should sanctify our time, which should sanctify our space, and which sanctify our souls. Shabbat Shalom, everyone. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.